Hey, I'm Zach. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. I hope that it encourages you. I hope it challenges you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's Word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our community here at Restore, whether that's coming to one of our Sunday gatherings or coming to one of our Restore groups. Either way, we would love to see you. You can get more information about that on our website at RestoreAustin.org. And I hope you enjoyed this week's video. You know, it's, um, it's, it's been kind of a rough week, kind of a rough couple of months. Um, you know, last Sunday night, uh, about 10 p.m., a gunman opened fire from the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas. His target was a group of about 22,000 concert goers below, and he fired on them for more than 10 minutes before taking his own life. All in all, more than 520 people were injured and 59 have passed away so far. It was the deadliest mass shooting in our country's modern history. And if that line sounds familiar, it's because we were using that phrase just last summer to describe the shooting at Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, Florida, where 50 people died. And we were using it not long before that to talk about Sandy Hook Elementary and not long before that to talk about Virginia Tech. The FBI's definition of a mass shooting is this, four or more shot and or killed in a single event at the same general time and location, not including the shooter. Using that definition, if you go back to June of last year when the Orlando shooting occurred at Pulse Nightclub, we have had 521 mass shootings in the last 477 days in our country. I had four different, like, so I send the slides last night to our tech team and they put those in. I've had four different people come up to me this morning and ask if that's a real stat. That's unbelievable. And it's, it's not only that, right? It's not the only thing we're facing. Racial tensions are high. We're in an ongoing conflict with North Korea. Hurricanes continue to devastate the Southeast United States, including Puerto Rico. We can't figure out what to do about healthcare. We've got a lot of things going on. And in the midst of that, we come here to church and we sing a song where the refrain is, you are good, you are good. There are times that I don't know if I believe that all the way. You know what I mean? Like, you, you hear about, I woke up last Monday morning and heard about the shooting in Las Vegas, and I'm like, God, how is that good? I, I believe you are good, God, I do, but how is that good? You know? with so many hard things swirling around us and the brokenness of our world so in our faces lately. Where do we turn? Where are we placing our hope? 
That's the question I want to ask us this morning. If we were having coffee, you and I, we were sitting across the table, we were recounting all the things, the bad things that have been happening, the hard things that our world is facing, and I asked you, where do you find hope in times like this? What would you say? Think about it. What would you say? Maybe you find hope in humanity. You know, you're one of those people that even though all of the crud is going on around you, you find that one article about that group of people who risked everything to go save someone. You know, or, or you think about the first responders at a time like Las Vegas who rushed in there when everybody was rushing away. They rushed toward the danger. And you say, look, look, I, I knew some people were, I knew people were inherently good. I, I knew that. Look, there's still good in this world. Maybe you trust and hope in humanity. Maybe you're someone who hopes in security like financial security, you know? You've worked really hard, you've built up a nice bank account, some good assets, and you think, even though there's a lot going on out here, I've got some stability, you know? I'm gonna be okay. Even if the economy turns down a little bit again, I'm, I'm going to be okay, I'm gonna make it. I've, I've built this up. Maybe you're trusting in that. Maybe you're trusting in your own power, you know, like, you think, well, if, if I'd been there when one of those mass shootings would have happened, I would have, I would have stopped it. You know, I would have protected myself and my loved ones. I have power to do that. You know, I, I wouldn't have let that happen. I think for, for many Christians, you know, they would say, sitting across the table, having coffee, I asked them where their hope was. They'd say, hey, my hope's in Jesus, you know. My hope's in Jesus. But, you know, hear me, that, that's a great thing. Right? It's a great thing to place your hope in Jesus, but what does that even mean? What does that really mean when I say, I, I hope in Jesus? You know, are we talking about we hope that we're going to get to heaven someday and everything is going to be okay? We're going to leave this, this, this terrible world behind. We're going to get to heaven? Does it mean that we're hoping that, you know, he's going to give us peace in the midst of all of the hard times? What, what is it that we mean when we say we're hoping in Jesus? Because it's great to hope in Jesus, but if we don't know what that means, how can it really help? In hopeless times. You know, this entire series, like I mentioned earlier, is about the very first church. Later, they would be called Christians for the first time. Actually, they were called just followers of Jesus or followers of the way before that. And if you remember, if you haven't been here for a few weeks, but what happened was Jesus died and was buried and resurrected, right? And he, he went to heaven. But right before he went to heaven, he talked to his disciples, the, this group of about 120 who were left over, who were following him even after he died. And he said, hold on. Because the Holy Spirit is coming. It's going to be even better than when I was here because I just lived among you. He's going to live inside of you, and it's going to be incredible. So Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem where they were, and then in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says, hold on. It's going to be okay. It's coming. And so they went up to this room, and they just prayed every single day. These 120 folks just prayed, God, send your spirit. God, come. God, start your church. And then one day he did. And it was incredible. The Holy Spirit came down. 3,000 people were saved. We just read a story last week where 5,000 more people were saved. And these disciples, these, these first church just... They just loved people radically and they loved Jesus radically and they, they were there for one another and they cared for their community and it attracted people to them. And the Bible says that people were being saved day after day after day after day. It's incredible, this movement of the church. But things in the first century were not that great all around them. 
Like the hopeless times that we're facing right now, I think the first church would have looked at it and been like, I get it. I get it. Things were hard for us too. Consider this. In the first century, the economy is a total disaster. The gap between rich and poor is greater than it ever has been in human history. Taxes from the Romans that occupied them are so high that they've become a burden that most people, kind of middle class and below, a burden that most people can't bear. Many people resort to crime or to begging to try and survive. Women and minorities are dehumanized. They're totally unable to get jobs at this point, and if they do, they make less than 50% of what a majority male would make. Women and minorities are even treated like slaves or property many times. There is perpetual war. Violence is commonplace, even in the streets of the city. There would be Roman officials or there would be tax collectors and you'd have these rebel groups. If they were caught alone, the rebel groups would just come out and kill them and then run back. And then when that happened, the Romans would retaliate against the rebel groups and and there was just bloodshed all over the place. You didn't feel safe to walk around the streets in the first century a lot of places. It was a tough time. The first century church has already started experiencing persecution for their faith. So it might be easy to think, well, things are bad out there, but for them in there, it was great. The surrounding community was struggling, but for that first church, they banded together, they held on, everything was fine for them, but they started to be persecuted for the first time, and many of them, in fact, most of them, would end up eventually losing their lives for their faith. Things were tough. These were hard times. And yet, even in the midst of all this brokenness, the first church that we read about is full of joy and hope. Not just full of, but defined by their joy and hope. In fact, when you read non-biblical first century authors, historians, and things like that, guys like Josephus and others who wrote about what was happening in the first century and they talked about the people of the way, they talked about how they were just defined by this irrational, inexplicable joy and hope all the time. So where were they getting this hope? Where did it come from? That's the question that I want to answer this morning. And I truly believe, listen to me, I truly believe that the answer to that question is going to set some of us in this room free from the anxieties and the burdens and the hopelessness we're carrying. Because God is using the first church to bring hope into the world, to awaken the world to his grace and love and hope. And their hope is our hope. We have a lot to learn from them. So open up with me to Acts chapter three. We're gonna dive in there this morning. If you weren't here for last week or need a refresher for where we are, I just kind of got us up to this point, but God has just used Peter to heal a man who has been lame since birth at the first part, first half of chapter three. This man jumps around, he jumps up, he starts running around and dancing. He's so excited. He's he's a little over 40 years old. And Peter comes up and he He says, get up and walk in the power of Jesus. And the guy is healed and he jumps around. He's so excited that he can finally walk for the first time. And you can imagine, this was actually in the the courts of the temple, outside of the temple itself. And you can imagine that this was causing quite a ruckus, right? It was was incredible. These people that had gone every day into the temple and seen this lame man who couldn't walk. Now we're seeing that same guy jump around and talk and yell and talk about the goodness of God. So you can imagine, it was a ruckus. They ran over. They wanted to see what was happening. And they start asking, how did this happen? Who are these guys? Did they heal you? What's going on? And Peter makes this incredible statement. 
He says, it's not by our power or piety that this man was healed. It is by faith in Jesus Christ. So we talked about last week, are you trying to do things in your own power and piety? Or are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Well, Peter goes on afterwards to remind that same crowd, the people that had gathered around, to remind them that this Jesus who healed this man is the same Jesus whom the people in the crowd had asked to be killed just days before, even though he was completely innocent. But even though they killed him, he overcame death and rose from the grave. And so Peter's telling them all about this, and we pick it up in verse 17. Peter says, now fellow Israelites, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all of the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer, that is Jesus. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and so that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you and anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So that's a lot. We're going to dive into it and kind of dissect it. So Peter mentions a few people here. Moses, Samuel, and Abraham. Why would he mention those people? Well, remember his audience. These are people that had gathered at the Jewish temple. So these are most likely almost all Jewish people. They had been convinced just days before by their leaders, Jewish leaders, that Jesus was this liar and this heretic for claiming to be the son of God, for claiming to be the person that the prophets like Moses and Samuel and Abraham had spoken about. That's what Jesus claimed. And the religious leaders said, no, he's a liar. He's a heretic. Let's put him to death. And these people said, you're right. Let's put him to death. So Peter here is saying Jesus wasn't a liar at all. He's the one that Moses and Samuel and Abraham and all the other prophets for all time have been talking about for hundreds of years. He was the savior of the world and you didn't like what he, you had, what he had to say and so you killed him. I want you to think about how hopeless Peter's audience must have felt in that moment. That's harsh, Right? Not only is their world overwhelmed with brokenness like I just talked about, it's starting to sink in that they actually killed their savior, their one hope to restore all the brokenness. Think about processing that for the first time. Look, this world is so broken and so devastated and a guy came and he wanted to restore all of it and we killed him. But here is the grace of God that the church is awakening the world to. They gave Jesus death, but still he offers them life. They gave Jesus death, but still he offers them life. The people are able to find hope in the midst of seeming hopelessness. Where do they find it? Peter lays it out back in verse 19. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be blotted out 
so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and so that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, that is Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. If you've been around our church for even a little while, you've probably heard us say that God is on a mission of restoration. He's restoring all things. He's making all things new. That's where our church gets our name, Restore. We just long to be a part of this process that God is on, this mission that God is on of restoring the world, of making it new. And if you aren't sure, when we say things like we're on a mission of restoration with God, if you're not sure what that means, Peter breaks it down so beautifully in these verses. First, he says that sin is blotted out. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's important to remind ourselves again. When he says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be blotted out, he's saying that repentance has nothing to do with not sinning. Somehow we've conflated those things. We've made repentance all about not sinning anymore, turning away from sin, and pursuing this righteous life of Jesus, trying to be good enough for God to accept us. That's what we've made repentance into. But in fact, that's not only not what the word repent means, it's never used like that in the whole of scripture. Not one time, it doesn't have anything to do with not sinning. It means to change your mind. That's what repent means, literally. Change your mind. That's exactly how Peter is using it here. Change your mind about Jesus. You guys had him killed. Change your mind. He is actually the savior of the world. And turn to God. Change your mind and turn to God so that your sins may be blotted out. That order is important. Notice it there. Your sins being blotted out comes after you repent. You don't take care of your sin. Jesus takes care of your sin. You change your mind. You turn to God and he blots out your sin. We don't blot our sins out. God does. Now, you may or may not know, but the New Testament was originally written in a language called Greek, Koine Greek, actually. It was kind of a a commoner Greek term. And this word, blotted out, in the Greek is one word, and it's an amazing, amazing word. It's actually the same term that was used for the process of taking ink off of paper in the first century. So if you don't know much about first century culture... They actually used papyrus, basically parchment from plants to write on. I brought a picture of it with me so you can see what it looks like. That's a piece of papyrus. So they would write on that, and they didn't have a bunch of it. It was actually a really hard process to take the plant, to crush it down, and to make it into paper. So they didn't have much of that. In fact, it was really, really expensive. And so scribes might have it, or rich people might have it, but the commoner didn't really have much papyrus if they may have had just one little piece. So what they had to do is they actually had to write stuff down, then when they wanted to do it again, they had to wash it off. They had to take the ink off of the papyrus. But the cool thing about papyrus is that the ink doesn't soak into the paper. When you write it, it just kind of sits on the surface. So what they would do is they would drop it in this solution of water, and the ink would be blotted out. It's the same term that's used here. The ink would be blotted out. So when you pulled it back out of the water, It was just blank papyrus again. There was no trace of the thing that you'd written before. This word is also amazing because it occurs here in the perfect tense. So not only are we being dipped into that water and our sin like ink from papyrus being washed, 
so that when we come out, there's nothing, there's no trace of it left. Not only is that happening, but this is in the perfect tense, meaning that it has happened, it is happening, and it will forever happen. We are perpetually being, our sin is perpetually being blotted out. Think about it like this. We're like a piece of papyrus that remains in the solution all the time. When ink or sin tries to stick to us, it can't even stick. It just washes away. He's constantly blotting out our sin. After repentance and blotting out comes what Peter calls times of refreshing. So the first step is you, you repent, you change your mind, you turn to God. He blots all of your sins out. You're in this perpetual solution of blotting out where sin never sticks to you anymore. You're not defined by it. It's not who you are. And then next comes these times of refreshing. We're constantly being refreshed by Jesus. The Bible is clear that if you are a child of God, you have been given everything that you need. 2 Peter 1.3 puts it this way. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. We've been given everything that we need. We're constantly being refreshed, constantly being blotted out. Sin doesn't stick to us, and we're constantly being refreshed. Think about it like this. If you were at a restaurant, you ever had a waiter or waitress that came by, and they said, can I refresh your drink for you, right? And sometimes it gets, like, a little bit annoying because your drink is, like, you've only had, like, one drink, you know? And you're like, can I refresh it for you? And you're like, if you can get some more water in there, I guess you can try. But forgive the illustration. Jesus is like that. Okay? He is this constant refresher of our cup. He is overflowing our cup all the time. He would not be a great waiter because it would just be pouring out all the time. He's just pouring it in. He's always refreshing us all the time. In fact, David puts it similarly, not exactly like I did, but similarly in Psalm 23, 4, and 5. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. My cup overflows. Sin doesn't stick to you anymore, and your cup is always being refreshed. He's given you everything that you need. Even when times are darkest, it seems like all hope is gone. Jesus is our refreshment. He overflows our cup. So those are the first two things. And then lastly, in God's mission of restoration, Jesus returns and restores everything. Verse 20, so that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. This is our hope. He completes his mission of restoration and restores all things. It all started back in Genesis 1 when God created all things for the first time. The heavens, the earth, everything in them, and that includes humanity, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they live inside this garden called Eden, and Eden is paradise, the perfection it's, it's just the best that you can think of. God is walking and talking with his people in the cool of the day. 
They've got everything they could ever want and need. It's earth as it was intended to be. There's no sin, there's no pain, there's no death, but there is this tree. There is this tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells Adam and Eve, you don't need this. Trust me, place your hope in me. You have everything that you could ever need. You don't need this tree, just stay away from it. You don't need to know all of the stuff, all of the good and evil in the world. And Adam and Eve are cool with that for like 15 minutes. And then Satan in the form of a serpent comes along and he's talking to Eve and he says, come on, did God really say that? God's holding out on you. He's holding out. He doesn't want you to become like him. He doesn't want you to know all of the good and all of the evil in the world. He's afraid. He's afraid he's holding out on you. And Adam and Eve make this choice to place their hope in knowledge, to place their hope in trying to be like God instead of placing their hope in God. And the world breaks and sin enters and the perfection of Eden is no more. And Adam and Eve suffer the consequences and they have to leave. And We've been dealing with the brokenness ever since. And lest you blame them like it's all their fault, You and I, we choose to place our hope in something other than God every single day. I'll just say me. I won't speak for you guys. I do it every single day. I choose to trust and hope in something other than God. Find my power there. From the moment that sin broke the world, God started his mission of restoration. He didn't leave it alone for a second. From the moment that sin broke everything, he entered in and he said, I am starting to restore all things. I'm gonna make all things new. And as we walk through mass shootings and racism and hurricanes and healthcare crises, it's painfully obvious that that mission is not complete yet. And we long for the day when it will be. You may or may not know J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, he's an author, right? And he, he wrote a bunch of great books, most famously The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. But he was also this really amazing Christian guy. He was best friends with C.S. Lewis. And they wrote letters back and forth. And he wrote letters to this other group of Christians that he hung out with all the time. And in one of his letters, he talks about this longing in our hearts that we have. He says, we all long for Eden. We are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human is still soaked with the sense of exile. We long for Eden. We long for God's mission of restoration to be completed and for all things to be good again. Perfect and new. And here's what the church understood that I think that we must Understand that time is coming. It's real. It's not a fairy tale. He is on that mission of restoration and he is restoring all things and it is worth placing our hope in. And this is just kind of a side note, but it is so much more than heaven, okay? Heaven is not our hope. 
Heaven is temporary. Heaven is, heaven is like a, it's a, a big, beautiful, amazing holding place until God restores all things and the new heaven and new earth are made one in one place where God is with his people. We don't just like leave the brokenness of this world behind and let it all burn away and spend eternity on the streets of gold singing to Jesus. Like that's taught in churches, but it's not real. It's not true. That's not what scripture says. It's not our ultimate home and it's not our ultimate hope. New heaven and new earth is. And let me tell you a little bit about it. Revelation 21. I want you to just close your eyes and just listen to this description of God's finished mission of restoration. Find your hope here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You can open your eyes. That is our hope. That is our hope. And the best news The best news is that it's not just all gonna happen someday with a snap of his fingers. God is on that mission now. He is restoring lives and people and neighborhoods and families today, today, now. Um, Some of you know that we we started fostering a couple of months ago. Um, And I haven't really talked about it at all from stage. Um, but that, that's, I think, opened our eyes to just a, a new level of brokenness in our world, you know? Um, little kids without families. It's just, it's really, really hard stuff. It's really hard stuff. And there are times, especially early on in, in the foster care journey where it feels hopeless, you know? You're, you're in the system, you're around the people who have experienced trauma more than a lot of us can imagine. Some of you have been there and you understand. And it feels hopeless. And we sing that song about God being good, but I'm in this situation. I'm like, that's not good. That's not good. What are you doing here, God? But I've seen this little person come into our home. And they've only been there like eight weeks or something. I've seen firsthand God use us to be a part of restoring this little person. This little person who's been broken, who has been hurt, who's experienced trauma beyond our wildest imagination. And just through some real love and hugs and bedtime stories and dance parties, he's restoring 
this little person to who he wants him to be. I'm telling you that it's not just some dream or hope in the future. He's doing it now. He's doing it now, and he wants you to be a part of it. He wants me to be a part of it. That's where we hope. When we wake up to a notification about the deadliest mass shooting in history, when we see white nationalists marching with tiki torches, and when we see all of this crap in our world happening, and we don't know where to turn, I'm telling you, turn here. And I'm going to be honest with you, because I love you, and because I care deeply about you, if you are hoping in anything else, you are going to be tragically disappointed. Tragically, tragically disappointed. Because Jesus Christ and the mission of restoration that he is on and that he will complete one day is the only place where real, true hope is found. We hope in Jesus. And it's so much more than a cliche that we toss out when times get tough. When our hope is firmly placed in him, we don't get shaken by the storms of life. I love how Jeremiah describes it in his book. He says, blessed is the one who hopes in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. When you place your hope in Jesus, you are a tree planted by water. No matter the desert or the drought around you, you never run dry. No matter what storms come, you are not shaken. You may bend, but you don't break. That's the promise that Jesus makes when you place your hope in him. The band's gonna come back up and and we're gonna close today by offering you a time of communion. Earlier we talked about how the very first church, this was one of the things they dedicated themselves to, the the breaking of bread together. And it was way more than meals, It it was sharing in the communion meal. And so up here we have grapes representing the wine and crackers representing the bread. The band's going to come back up, and we're going to give you a chance during this last song to just on your own, at your own pace, come up and partake in the communion meal. But before we do that, I want you to listen. Listen to the way that Paul describes communion. You've probably heard this verse before if you've been in church around communion, but here it is, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. He says, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. I think we're pretty familiar with that part. We're remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made, his death and his burial and his resurrection. But listen to this last verse. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is not a forever meal for us. 
Communion is not something that will be happening in the new heaven and new earth. We replace these meager bread and wine with a feast and a banquet beyond our wildest imaginations. He's even restoring the communion meal. Isn't that incredible? This is such a a beautiful picture. We do this until he comes to remember that he is not done. That he still wants to use you and me on this mission of restoration to make all things new. Can we all stand together? But until the day that we gather around that table and we partake in that great feast together, we remember the mission. We remember his restoration and we place our hope in him and in him alone. So let's pray. God, thank you for your truth from scripture this morning. Thank you that... You are present and you are active and you are good even in the direst of situations. Thank you that you give hope to the hopeless. I pray that for us that are in this room this morning, people that are watching this, God, if if they are dealing with hopelessness due to the circumstances surrounding them or circumstances in their own life, that this truth from your word would set them free. that they would find hope in the only place where it is appropriately placed, and that is in you, God, and in your mission of restoration. Use us. Restore us. And make all things new.